0: You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered, I'm Chip Scambus.
1: And I'm El Newbold, an on-again, off again couple's past marred by domestic violence, alcohol abuse, and acts of depression, finally came to a halt yesterday when both were found dead in the apartment they shared together. Florida's eighty nine point one WUFTFM's Belinda Post
2: has the latest updates on this tragedy. The Alachua County Sheriff's Office recently released names for the couple found dead in Tower Oaks Glen Apartments, along with some background information about the two. The bodies of Mary Ellen Donegan and Stephen England were first discovered by the apartment complex's painter, Luis Luego. Luego had been England's coworker at the complex.
3: Well, I look at the window and at the sliding door glass, and I just saw, saw him laying in the bed with a shotgun between his legs. Blood everywhere.
2: Alachua County Sheriff's Office spokesperson Art Forge says there will be further investigation into the deaths, but as for now, nothing leads the Sheriff's Office to believe it was anything other than a murder-suicide.
4: Autopsies were conducted this morning. We're still uh, awaiting some general information from those and still uh, continuing some forensics testing. And uh, we have a few more interviews to conduct before we make uh, an official ruling on this. But Uh, Everything at this point in time leads us to believe that it's probably going to be a murder-suicide. Mrs. Dunnigan being killed first and then Mr. England killing himself.
2: 4G continues that the couple had a volatile history.
4: Since October the 11th of 2012, we've been out there for three different domestic incidents between Mr. England and uh, Mrs. Dunnigan. And uh, on the 11th, when he was arrested, he actually told uh, one of the booking officers That he didn't have anybody to call and that he had nothing to live for and that he might as well be dead. Uh, He was dressed out in a suicide prevention gown and then placed in a uh, cell where he could be observed every 15 minutes as a precaution.
2: This sort of mentality was echoed in England's behavior. Coworker Luego comments on the Stephen England he knew.
3: He was having too many problems with his girlfriend he used to come over and take off every other day, you know. You know, the guy used to, used to be an alcoholic, you know, and he, he's one person today and one person tomorrow. He will change after four or five beers, and he brings all his problems to work. He was telling us that he wanted to blow his brains out a long time ago, but I never believed him until he did it.
2: The complex's property manager, Karen Baird, says Edward's depression was obvious and significantly heightened by the death of his father
5: depressed you could tell he was just very hollow he never smiled he's just very very depressed never got over his father's death i don't think
2: she said his depression manifested last friday while he was at work
5: got pissed off friday and walked off the job he was having a bad day anyway and like i said he was depressed he actually told my other maintenance guy that that he had a shotgun and he was gonna home and load it, and if anybody came to his house, he'd blow, blow their brains out.
2: Edwards was 46, and his live-in girlfriend, Mary Ellen Dunnigan, was 44, before both were found dead Thursday afternoon. For Florida's 89.1 i I'm Belinda Post.
0: In the aftermath of the Newtown, Connecticut shooting, gun control has become a hot-button issue across the country. As Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM Charlene Chogo reports, Florida legal scholars believe state law is preventing any stricter gun policies on the local level.
6: Legal experts from across the country gathered today to speak at UF's 12th annual Richard E. Nelson Symposium of Law. UF law professor Michael Wolf says the symposium brings together great legal minds every year to discuss controversial issues.
7: It's a way of educating our students my faculty members and local government attorneys on um, issues that are of uh, interest nationally and locally.
6: This year the conference focused on the power struggle between state and local governments and many national questions such as gun control. Oklahoma City University law professor Michael O'Shea and Palm Beach County Senior Assistant County Attorney Amy Petrick said they disagree with Florida's laws which don't allow local governments to impose stricter gun control measures than the state does. Patrick says Floridians rely on local officials to represent their interests and that citizens' safety needs are being trumped by state law. Local
3: uh, legislative activity is a really critical part of the citizens' ability to be heard and to have what they say uh, translate into public policy.
6: A provision of the law places harsher punishments on local governments who go against state law. The revision, which took effect in 2011, means city and county legislators can't create tougher gun laws without risking heavy fines. Petrick says she believes the change was caused by several local measures that violated state law and that it represents a shift in the dynamic between Florida's state and local legislatures. If the
3: state is going to essentially bully the locals when they feel like the locals are stepping out of line, that is uh, an unfortunate um, evolution in that
6: relationship. Even though she thinks the law was intended to protect the Second Amendment right to bear arms, Petrick says we have to look at if the law actually benefits Florida citizens.
3: The penalty provisions definitely don't, because they chill legislative independence at the local level. And so that is the the crux of the case that I'm litigating, and I also think as a matter of public policy it's a bad idea.
6: The revision also removed the waiting period between the purchase and delivery of handguns and requires officials who purposely violate the law to be removed from office. For Florida's 89one WUFTFM, i I'm Charlene Ochogo reporting.
1: Proposed changes to the state's retirement system are becoming more of a reality. Florida lawmakers have now drafted a bill that would force new hires into a 401k-type plan, doing away with the state's pension plan. But as Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, the measure is under heavy criticism for having no concrete financial analysis.
8: By eliminating the state's pension plan, new people hired after January 1, 2014 would be forced into the state's other plan. A 401k style plan known as the investment plan. On Thursday, the proposal picked up the committee sponsorship of the House Government Operations Subcommittee. The committee's chair is Republican Representative Jason Broder.
4: doesn't hurt anybody who's currently in the system, doesn't break any promises to those who haven't been hired yet, and it doesn't ask for any taxpayer increases uh, either. So. Um, I want to make sure everybody understands that.
8: But despite Broder's assurances, he did admit he did not have any concrete numbers to go on regarding the bill's financial impact, since lawmakers are still awaiting the results of a study commissioned last month. That made Democratic Representative Irv Slosberg question why the legislature was still trying to go forward with such a bill.
7: If this is
4: a, a new structure, if like I'm, you know, building a new building or, or a new structure. Don't you think it's wise to have your numbers forecasted uh, before you build the new structure?
8: The bill also drew opposition from many public employee unions, especially those who represent special risk employees like law enforcement officers and firefighters. Here's Rowan Taylor, president of the Metro-Dade International Association of Firefighters.
0: Let's picture a hill with a little kid on his little tricycle trying to ride up this hill. And he gets halfway up the hill and a boulder comes down and he diverts from the boulder
9: and he keeps going and he keeps going and he gets to the top of the hill and a size 14 shoes come out and kick him back down the hill because that's what we're doing. It seems like every time the Florida retirement system is trying to do better
0: we do something to try to tear it apart.
8: While all nine Republicans on the committee voted in favor of the plan, some say the bill has a long way to go before it can be passed out of the full Florida legislature. The bill passed out of the House Government Operations Subcommittee along party lines with three Democrats opposed. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Kortner.
0: Gainesville residents are raising awareness for autism. The fifth annual Stomp the Swamp for Autism is tomorrow morning, and the number of people registered for the event is already four times higher than in previous years. University of Florida student director of the event, Ashley Giddings, says that this reason for the overwhelmingly high number this year is the spread of support for the cause.
10: We've been able to notice how everyone's becoming aware and starting to know someone who has autism and um, just joining in in support for this cause.
0: Giddings says that she encourages everyone to attend because Stomp the Swamp is a great way to raise awareness because this is one of the fastest growing developmental disabilities in the country. The original founder of the event, Amanda Cruz, says she has always been encouraged by Gainesville's continual support.
11: When we first started, it was a smaller event, obviously, in its first year, but it has grown Year after year, a lot of the Gainesville restaurants have been very supportive in donating food or money or whatever they can, really, and trying to get the word out about the event that's going to be going on on Saturday.
0: The event will be hosted by UF's first lady, Chris Matchin and includes live entertainment and free food for those participating. This is the first year that children under the age of 12 can participate in the event for free. The children have their own obstacle course, while other participants run or walk along the inside of University of Florida's Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. Activities will be available for all age groups and abilities, and also for the first time this year, Gator athletes will be there cheering on the children and the runners. Online registration for Stomp the Swamp closes tonight. There will be a free barbecue this Saturday at one of Gainesville's newest urban farms. Florida's 89one WUFTFM’s reporter Drew Bryan has more on how this Saturday Porter's Community Farm is having a potluck and barbecue where the public can see how far Porter's has come.
10: On a sleepy morning in the Porter's Community in Gainesville, one can walk through the community garden where green vegetables overtake the earth. And even better, you can too. The creators of the Porter's Community Farm, in partnership with Florida Organic Growers, are inviting the public out for a potluck and barbecue this Saturday from 2 to 5 p.m. Director of the Porter's Community Farm, Travis Mitchell, says a lot of work has gone into this project since it first started last fall and he urges everyone to come out and see how far it's come.
9: Uh, we're hoping it should be a kind of fun, casual affair, so it's a, we'll have a barbecue grill set up, um, grilling some things if people want to bring something to throw on, and it's hopefully going to be a potluck as well, and we're going to cook up some vegetables from the garden this afternoon to share.
10: This farm is located on Southwest 3rd Street, a short distance from the University of Florida in Gainesville. This farm provides fresh vegetables for the St. Francis House and raised farm beds where community members can plant their own food. As wonderful as this sounds, this farm was not welcomed with open arms by all community members at first. Stephen Smith, the owner of a dry cleaning business across the street, says the unsightly view of a farm in the beginning stages with weeds made them uncertain of its popularity and success.
7: At first, uh, it was it it was a negative to me simply because we were hoping just to have if they won't build on the lots at least keep them mowed and neat and uh, as soon as it became apparent they were going to start farming then they quit mowing they quit weed eating they quit doing everything other than farming and uh, it got to be pretty unsightly sometimes they worked hard sometimes you wouldn't see anybody over there for two three weeks Uh, now they're beyond that point they've got a much stronger commitment uh, Travis told me yesterday they've uh, had $12,000 fundraiser. They've accomplished uh, all donated funds. It's a nonprofit organization that he works with. and um, they get some things donated and they've got a lot of labor donated from student types, classes, uh, community uh, residents. Uh, some of the local kids have been over there helping them haul dirt and stuff. So it, it's becoming a source of pride for the community, uh, which is good.
10: This sense of pride and success of the farm will be shown this Saturday. Like Smith said, he noticed how volunteering is keeping the farm running, and Director Travis Mitchell says the farm thrives off of volunteers.
9: We've got some regular volunteer days going now, and um, yeah, we've, uh, I, haven't added, I should add up the hours, but yeah, pretty much every time we're out there, we've got two or three or four people um, helping us take care of everything.
10: Again, the Porter's Potluck and Barbecue will take place this Saturday from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Porter's Community Farm. Members of the community can come out for free barbecue and see what Porter's is all about. For Florida's 89.1 i I'm Drew Bryan reporting.
1: The Alachua County Office on Homelessness is asking Gingsville residents to avoid taking donations for the homeless directly to the Bow Diddley Community Plaza. Office personnel say the donations are ended up scattered across the plaza as trash and not benefiting those in need. WFTFM's Julian Hernandez reports on how the most effective way to get donations out to those who need them the most
12: Sometimes even the best intentions can lead to problems. Donations of clothing are becoming trash and going to waste. In order to prevent that, the Alachua County Coalition for the Homeless and Hungry is asking those with the desire to help Gainesville's less fortunate to give their donations to organizations dedicated to helping the homeless. Executive Director of St. Francis House Ken Van, says the best way to make a difference is through organizations and not direct help.
9: An agency can ha- has better control about how to distribute it donations, and the clients that would come in, the ones that are in need of it, would be receiving it directly, and it helps to control the overflow of one person receiving too much and then taking it out and, and uh, may not, you know, they have nowhere to store it or lock it up, so it becomes an issue as far as... Uh, You know, using it as bed rolls or just becoming
12: uh, are set to the wayside. Agencies like St. Francis House, Goodwill, and the Salvation Army have the resources and infrastructure necessary to turn donations into help, which will actually make a difference for homeless people. Van says organizations like his can ensure the aid is going to those who need it most.
9: We're able to do it in a way that makes sure that the uh, the donations go directly to the person that is needing it. For instance. We have donors that will bring in items that, of clothing that are on hangers well these items are given through to our case managers and they're given to people that are going out for
12: job interviews even with organizations like these there are those who say the best way to help is giving directly to the homeless Jennifer Watson is homeless and goes to Bo Diddley Plaza looking for donations people have left there she says having the donations at the Plaza gives the homeless an opportunity to see what's available to them
5: a lot of people that when they donate to places like St. Francis and stuff A lot of people don't get to see what has been donated for them so i bet it's best they bring it out here
12: however watson says the clothing donations are appreciated and helpful but where the homeless really need help is with long-term solutions
5: employment and shelter would be the main two things i believe that would help them out you know they have those two things then maybe they could have a little more encouragement to try to get this
13: stuff up off the street.
12: St. Francis House offers shelter, meals, and counseling for the homeless free of charge. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Julian Hernandez. And Florida lawmakers rejected a bill
0: on Thursday that would have put an end to the death penalty in the state. The State House of Representatives Criminal Justice Committee voted 9-4 to 4 on the initiative. As of now, Florida has about 400 prisoners on death row, placing it second in the nation in the number of inmates on death row behind Texas. State Representative Michelle Ray winkle Vasalinda, who filed the bill, says Florida is the nation's leading state with the number of innocent people sentenced to death.
13: We have exonerated more people in the last number of years than any other state. What, what that means is we have had more innocent people on death row than any other state in the union. So we do not have a good track record of making sure that the people that we put on death row uh, as a state are always guilty of the crime.
0: Ray Winkle-Vassalinda says the system needs to be more careful when accusing a person of a crime because a lot of mistakes have been made in Florida in the past.
13: And some of them are using uh, eyewitness testimony, uh, using jailhouse snitches uh, to convict. Um, you know, there, there has been racial disparity uh, in all the states and in Florida. Um, there, there's a number of reasons why the, the uh, death penalty is applied unfairly, and apparently Florida has done more of that.
0: According to the Florida Department of Corrections, an inmate can spend about 13 years on death row before his or her execution. The cost to feed, clothe, house, and educate and provide medical services to the prisoners on death row is about $15,000 per year. These costs are paid with taxpayer money, and with 405 prisoners on death row right now in Florida, the total cost is about $6 million.
13: That all that extra money, in my view, if we stop doing the death, using the death penalty, we could use that money for uh, law enforcement, more law enforcement, better trained law enforcement, and better equipment for law enforcement. Which not only keeps them safe, you know, keeps the law enforcement, uh, our, our good law enforcement, safer, but also certainly keeps the citizens safe. And we know that that's a deterrent.
0: However, Representative Matthew Gates, who is on the same committee, says he wants to keep the death penalty in the state and reduce the time inmates spend on death row. I predict that
14: the members of our committee will decide that the death penalty is something that we don't want to get rid of in Florida. So if we're not going to get rid of it, let's at least fix it so we don't have this blight on our justice system where we have folks hanging around for 25 and 30 years uh, without any end in sight.
0: Ray... Ray winkle Vasalinda says she doesn't see how the strategy proposed by Representative Gates will work if Florida already has a record of accusing innocent people of crimes they didn't commit.
11: How do you
13: do that in a state that has had the most innocent folks on death row in the past? How do we make sure, if he's going to do that, that the death penalty is applied fairly, that people have their rights protected, and that we don't execute innocent people, because I think one innocent person that is executed is just
1: too much.
0: Ray Winkle-Vasalinda says that even though the bill was defeated this go-around, it doesn't mean that she won't try to bring it up in later sessions.
1: The Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles is having a problem with spam emails. WFT's Kylie Lekuski got the story from department spokesperson Kirsten olson Dulin.
15: As far as state government departments go, you'd think fishing problems would fall under Fish and Wildlife's jurisdiction. And it does, when it's FISH fishing. But a recent spout of PHISH fishing has the Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles floundering. Starting Thursday morning, fraudulent emails began popping up in people's inboxes. The messages looked like receipts for online purchases, complete with order numbers and links to tracking information, but the orders didn't exist. Officials in the department think it's a phishing scam and that the links in the emails could lead to dangerous malware. Spokesperson for the department, Kristen Olson-Doolin, said a series of calls alerted them to the problem.
16: No, uh, we had no idea this was going to happen. We just uh, simply started getting a lot of calls from people with questions, um, and we traced it back to the uh, phishing expedition that somebody undertook against the agency.
15: The department's database has not been hacked, and it appears that the recipient's email addresses came from an outside source. The emails can be identified because they come from two senders, do not reply at dhsmv.gov, and another address that looks like a personal email. Olson Doolin says the scammers use the credibility of a government department to perpetrate their fraud.
16: You know, I think any time a governmental agency is used as a front for this kind of thing, it's particularly dangerous because then when the agency does need to communicate with its customers, uh, people think it may be fraudulent.
15: To avoid being scammed, the department recommends deleting suspicious emails without opening them or clicking on any links. They also suggest updating computer programs, especially antivirus software, and if you have clicked on a link in a fraudulent email, keep an eye out for abnormal activity on your computer. Also, Doolin is worried about the safety of the recipient's computers.
16: And we certainly hope nobody was in a situation where they clicked on it and possibly got their computer infected.
15: Phishing scams are especially dangerous because they try to disguise themselves as ordinary emails from legitimate organizations or your friends and family. Tech website gizmodo.com says that the best way to avoid being scammed is to be vigilant and suspicious of links and attachments in emails. Just following links that cause you to re-enter login information for banks, email accounts, and Facebook or Twitter can open your accounts to these hackers, a danger that multiplies if you reuse the same login password on multiple websites. The Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles is doing its best to reel in this phishing attempt and to leave the hackers high and dry.
16: We do have our legal department working on it, our information technology department working on it, and then um, being that we have law enforcement as part of our agency, uh, we're pretty good at investigating things. So hopefully we'll be finding out who uh, is doing this and be able to stop them from doing it again for us or for anyone else.
15: For the sake of the emails recipients and their personal safety, let's hope they figure it out sooner than later. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, this has been Kylie Lukusky.
0: The Office of Public Counsel is asking the Florida Supreme Court to review a decision by state utility regulators to approve Florida Power & Light's request to increase base rates in their profit margin, which was approved despite public counsel's objections. Florida Power & Light bypassed public counsel when it initially filed its agreement just days before the start of the company's rate case in August. The utility provides electricity for 4.6 million customers across 35 counties in Central and South Florida, one issue that has yet to be resolved centers around determining whether FPL made sincere attempts to include public counsel in the negotiations of the settlement. FPL claims and testimony do have made many sincere attempts only to have public counsel spurn their advances. Public counsel denies this claim. Another issue at stake involves whether the PSC needs public counsel's signature on a deal before they are allowed to approve it. In arguments presented before the PSC during the 2012 rate case, FPL lawyer Wade Litchfield denied public counsel's claim that OPC must be a party to any approved settlement agreement.
4: In the legislative history is quite clear that OPC is to have, quote, all the rights of counsel, which any other bona fide party to a suit would have, uh, close quote. Nothing more. Although we have had our differences with public counsel during this proceeding, we do respect the role that public counsel plays here in the State of Florida. And in fact, we, we absolutely would have preferred to have public counsel on board in the settlement. And that's why we made several efforts uh, beginning last year to start our negotiations with public counsel. But commissioners, if, if settlements are to remain a, an important part of the regulatory process and to continue to be encouraged uh, in this jurisdiction as something that, that is in the public interest, then no one intervener, and not even public counsel, should be able to prevent a petitioner from negotiating
0: and reaching an agreement with other interveners who are willing to sit down and talk. This appears to contradict FPL's view expressed in a similar case before the Supreme Court. In 2002, FPL had an approved settlement agreement appealed to the Florida Supreme Court by the South Florida Hospital and Healthcare Association, which had not been a party to that agreement and was claiming the commission denied them due process. Public counsel believes FPL will use the reasoning from its 2002 case before the court this time around, rather than the positions it presented to the PSC last year.
14: And uh, then concluding in their argument on this case, they stated here the shoe is on the other foot, comparing to the Citizens v. Mayo case. Public counsel is not only not opposed to the stipulation, he was actively involved in negotiating the stipulation and supports it enthusiastically. These special conditions applicable to public counsel make his participation in the stipulation vitally important and by the same token make the FPSC's decision to conclude its rate review by approving the stipulation without holding a hearing especially appropriate. The contrast, the shoe on the other foot was he was contrasting the argument that the hospital association was making. Clearly FPL saw public counsel in his mandatory role then as vitally important to the public interest determination that the Commission made. They like us when we're on their side, however, when they can't make us see it their way, they read the law 180 degrees differently. They might tell you this today, that we don't matter, but I don't think they're going to change their tune when they argue before the Supreme Court and recede from the way they argued there.
0: The court will now begin to assemble the evidentiary record before scheduling hearing dates for the appeal.
1: A group of Florida lawmakers say a measure passed in 2011 to let counties operate their own juvenile justice centers isn't working. Regan McCarthy reports that the legislature say the facilities need more oversight from the Department of Juvenile Justice.
3: The 2011 law was meant to help communities work more efficiently by letting them create their own standards for operating their juvenile justice centers. A number of the counties have done so and in some places it's worked out. But David Utter with the Southern Poverty Law Center says in other places like Polk County that's not the case. Utter says the center there is operating under questionable standards.
9: These standards allow harsh chemical restraints, painful electronic restraints, and other adult-focused jail practices that are entirely inappropriate and dangerous for children.
3: Right now, the Polk County facility is wrapped up in a lawsuit filed by Utter's group because of its concerns over the facility's operating standards. Though Polk County officials deny many of the claims against their facility, But Democrats' Senator Arthenia Joyner of Tampa and Representative Mia Jones of Jacksonville are teaming up in an effort to bar such treatment at any juvenile corrections facility in the state. They've filed legislation to repeal some aspects of the 2011 law so any juvenile detention center would have to operate under the Florida Department of Juvenile Justice's standards. And Senator Joyner says passing the bill would be a good move all around. Senate Bill 506 means sheriffs must follow strict guidelines
13: developed by the Department of Juvenile Justice for Children and remain under DJJ's oversight, dramatically reducing taxpayers' exposure to liabilities and children's exposure to dangerous and unsafe conditions.
3: But Juvenile Justice Secretary Wansley-Walters says she supports the current law. She says counties are responsible for most of the cost of running their own juvenile detention centers and letting them figure out the most efficient way to do it makes sense. She adds her department is working with all parties to ensure the state's youth are safe and well served. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy.
0: The weather in the Northeast may not be affecting Florida directly, but in the case of utilities, energy companies around the state may get called to aid certain areas. Daniel Jesse, a spokesman for Gainesville Regional Utilities, explained that companies have a national system to organize aid.
4: Mutual aid agreements um, are made through uh, larger agencies that, that sort of organize and, and, and help them select uh, the, uh, the utilities that go help them out.
0: Jesse also brought up the example of Hurricane Sandy, which had the same kind of impact on the Northeast last fall. GRU did send aid for that disaster, and this storm might call for the same action.
4: In the case of very large, widespread um, destruction such as happened with Hurricane Sandy this past fall or the year before with Hurricane Irene, then they will send out requests for mutual aid for uh, companies all across the country.
0: But GRU isn't the only company that may be called to help. Paige Lane, a spokeswoman for Progress Energy, says they've already sent crews up in anticipation to help.
5: As of today, we've sent more than 700 of our contractors um, to the northeast to assist the various utilities up there with
16: power restoration.
0: The storm is set to last until late next week, and many populated areas could be without power well after that. Both power companies and many more have stated that whether or not they will be called to assist, they will be ready if needed. Applications for the school choice program are now available to Alachua County parents. WUFTFM's Morgan Falcon spoke with Public Information Officer Jackie Johnson for more on the story.
11: Parents in Alachua County are now able to apply to send their students to the school of their choice for the 2013-2014 academic year. Alachua County School Board Public Information Officer Jackie Johnson explains how this opportunity lets parents choose schools outside of their current zone.
5: This is simply an additional opportunity for uh, parents to uh, look at the schools that are available and see if there's one that might suit their child's needs better than the school that they are currently zoned to. Uh, We do have a, a fairly expansive choice uh, program here in alachua county mostly through our magnet programs uh... this is just uh, another window of opportunity uh... for parents and students to take advantage of
11: while this provides more freedom and opportunities for families accepting students to schools will rely on appropriate class size and availability
5: we have to look at um, you know what what the capacity is at each one of the schools we also have to take into account uh... the class size law which limits how many students you can have in each classroom so there are a number of factors that we have to look at uh... in in how we match students with schools
11: along with availability the district also takes other factors into consideration making sure families stay together and possible improvements in diversity are other reasons students could be admitted to schools of their choice
5: we look at whether or not they have siblings currently at the school Um, whether they've perhaps previously attended the school and moved, um, whether their socioeconomic status would improve diversity at the school. So there are a number of factors that the district looks at.
11: If students are accepted to a school, they will remain there until they complete the final grade level at the school. Parents who rely on buses to take their children to schools will have to be sure they have other means of transportation to schools they choose outside of their zone. For many of our current
5: choice programs, our magnet programs specifically, we do provide transportation. Uh, that is not an option with uh, controlled school choice or with zoning exemptions. Uh, for parents to take advantage of that, they would have to be able to provide transportation.
11: Applications for the school choice program can be found online at www.sbac.edu and select Zoning on the homepage. Mailed applications can be obtained by calling the Zoning Department at 955-7700. The deadline for applications is February 15th, and parents will be notified of their application status beginning February 25th. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, this is Morgan Falcon.
1: We're joined now live in the studio by ESPN eight fifty nine hundred sports reporter Mark Whiteman. Mark, what's going on in the sports
17: world? Hey, Al. Chip, thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, well, we're going to be talking on the cheap seats tonight. That's ESPN um, 850, uh, 900 as well, 100.1 FM in Ocala. Um, So our show's getting started at 6pm tonight, and we have a huge, huge, huge weekend ahead in Florida sports. In total, there are eight Gator programs um, in action this weekend, including the softball team, which just opened their season a little while ago. Um, They're playing Creighton right now in the Kajikawa Classic. That's going on in Arizona. They're going to take on Oregon later tonight. So they've got a busy day ahead of them. As well as the lacrosse team, um, national semifinalist last year suffered a heartbreaking loss to Syracuse. Um they're gonna be taking on North Carolina tomorrow in in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's a team they've never beat since they've been a program, so you can bet that the senior girls that have been here for all four years are really going to give it their all tomorrow against North Carolina. When you look at the basketball teams, um, obviously the men's basketball team coming off a pretty tough loss to arkansas on tuesday they'll be uh hosting mississippi state tomorrow afternoon and as well the women finally got a win in the sec um after a five five six game losing streak excuse me um and they also are in action on sunday so those are the the big sports as well the uh, men's tennis team they're taking on uh, everyone's favorite rival florida state in tallahassee this weekend uh the men's golf team is hosting the uh is hosting the sun uh, sun Invitational, excuse me um golf tournament in Gainesville and then the track and field team is in Virginia Tech for a meet and they also have another meet tomorrow but then when you look at the gymnastics program um they're taking on Alabama tonight they lost Alabama last year in the national championship by less than uh less than a single tenth of a decimal point which is it's crazy so they're hosting Alabama tonight should be fun crazy weekend ahead in Gator Sports
0: Thank you so much, Mark. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM. This has been a broadcast of the WUFT-FM News Team. I'm Chip Scambus.
1: And I'm El Newbold.